Good morning, church. I'm so grateful that you're here this morning, and I want to thank Chris and the worship team uh, for leading us in worship today. I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to be together in just a couple of minutes, Luke chapter 4. We are in our third week uh, where we're talking about meeting Jesus, uh, being reintroduced, reacquainted with Jesus, getting to know Jesus better, and want to talk some more about that today. Uh, But before we do that, I have some uh, really exciting information that I want to share with you, a date that I want you to mark on your calendars uh, today, that we'll be talking a lot about over the next couple of weeks. Sunday, March the 3rd, Sunday, March the 3rd is going to be Vision Sunday. Um, I realize uh, that some of you may already have plans for Sunday, March the 3rd, but if there is any way that you can be here Uh, change those plans. We want you to be here on Sunday, March the 3rd. Uh, For about a year, maybe a little really over a year at this point, uh, the elders and and ministers have been meeting, talking, praying, dreaming, meeting, talking, praying. We've all met and talked and prayed. I'm sure we couldn't have prayed enough, but we've met and talked about as much as all of us want to meet and talk. Uh, And we've been doing that over the last year or so to talk and to dream about our future as a church Uh, to think about the places that God is leading us and guiding us and pointing us, uh, things that we can accomplish together. Uh, And we're we're trying to accomplish our mission. You may or may not know this, but on the back of your bulletin every Sunday, there is our mission and vision statement. And our mission is to reach people with the love of Jesus Christ. And so we've been talking about how can we do that better? How can we reach people with the love of Jesus Christ? in more purposeful, intentional ways? What are things we need to do to help accomplish that mission? And what vision can God give us to help kind of embark on that journey? So on Sunday, March the 3rd, we have uh, some things we're really excited to share with you that we believe God has uh, given us some direction in regard to that as we've prayed about that and talked about that and met about those things. And uh, and we're going to talk about kind of the path uh, that we believe God is leading us on for, as a church over the next couple of years. And so I want to, again, invite you to, to be here March the 3rd. We'll share the details with that with everybody at the same time. That's kind of why we're doing it now. There's no real big, big reason for waiting other than we just want you to mark your calendar and plan to be here. I promise that it will be a day you don't want to miss. Uh, we're, some, we're really excited about the things that we're going to talk about that day. And I will, I will say this about that day because some of you may have noticed that we have not said much uh, if you're a new member, this, this will be new information to you, but if you've been here for a while, you know that this season uh, of our calendar year is typically when we're talking a lot about missions and building up to Mission Sunday, and you may have noticed that we haven't said much about Mission Sunday up to this point, uh, and that's because those plans for Mission Sunday, for our missions uh, for the next year are included in uh, what we're going to present on March the 3rd, and so Uh, We want you to know that our commitment to missions is as strong as it's ever been. Uh, We're as excited uh, as we have ever been about reaching people with the love of Jesus locally and to the ends of the earth. Uh, But we want to talk about all that specifically in some specific ways uh, on March the 3rd together. And so uh, this is not in any way a a statement about a commitment to missions. Missions has always been a huge part of the DNA and the culture of this church, and that's going to stay the same but we're going to include some of that in what we're going to present on March the 3rd. So uh, mark your calendars, plan to be here. You'll be hearing a lot more about it over the next month, getting some stuff in your actual mailbox at home, and we're uh, going to show a video next week, and we'll, we'll do some other things to kind of catch you up on what that's going to be about, but we want you to be, uh, be here on March the 3rd. So 
That's my, that's my commercial for the morning. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into Luke chapter 4. Father, we were grateful uh, that faithful love from above came to earth, uh, and that we know that his name is Christ, Jesus. And we pray that we'll recognize him. We pray that we'll see Christ in our lives and in the world around us, in other people working in the ways that Jesus works. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear because so often we read stories like the one we're going to read this morning when people, they just can't see it. And, uh, and we don't want to be those people who can't see Christ when he's standing right in front of us, who can't see your work, the work of God in our lives and in the world when it's staring us in the face. And so this morning, God, I pray that you'll open our hearts, that you'll help us to be receptive to the things you want us to hear and to learn as we study your word together. And we pray through the all-powerful name of Jesus. And amen. Do you, I don't know if you remember those magic eye puzzles that were really big in the 90s. Um, I, I, maybe they were big at other times, but I stopped seeing them after, you know, some certain year when I was probably, uh, you know, in the late 90s or so. But there, there, was, there was this puzzle that if you looked at it long enough, right, that, that you were apparently able to see something in the image, uh, maybe, maybe it could have been anything, you know, but you, I know there were a lot of theories about how it worked. You stood up really close to it and, you know, like crossed your eyes and then you kind of slowly backed away and uncrossed your eyes. I had a lot of people try to help me figure out how to see whatever image was hidden in the magic eye puzzle. I always thought it was like, you know, some weird club that you had to be in or maybe somebody was pulling a trick on me because I have never been able to see these things or never understood how you, you know, figured out how to do that. You're standing on one leg, and, you know, you, I don't know, it was kind of this weird thing. So this is one of those puzzles that I found, and, and you, maybe you've seen these or remember these. Uh, this image, you can go ahead, Larry, and advance to the next one. It's supposed to have that hidden in it. Uh, I, if, if it isn't that, and you saw it, and it's something inappropriate, I apologize, because I have no idea. But this is what they said. There's actually a website I discovered that has these, you, can, you know, a new one every week if you're really into them. I guess somebody apparently is. So, uh, but, but if that's not what it is, I, have, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to confirm that to you this morning. You think the picture is one thing, but it's really another thing altogether. And that's, that's kind of the way I think about our story this morning in Luke 4. Where we, have, where we left off last week, this story, as you'll see, you think that it's one thing, but it's really another thing altogether. And, and if you're feeling, again, sort of like you have deja vu or something, uh, we, we did study this story last week, and we are actually back in the same story again this morning. But we're going to study the last half of this story, Jesus' first sermon, really, his first message as, as far as Luke records it in Luke chapter 4. And with this story, you again, you think the story is one thing and it turns out to be another. And so I want to start reading this morning. I'm going to pick up in verse 16, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. <clears throat> where is where we're going to start. Luke says this. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling the scroll, Jesus found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set, sent me to proclaim freedom 
for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from Jesus' lips. But then they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote, quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, Jesus continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this they got up drove jesus out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff but jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way so jesus has come to town back home really to nazareth to the place that he grew up and he's in the synagogue on the sabbath Luke tells us, as was his practice, as was his habit. We have to, it's not the sermon today, but we have to remember before Jesus was anything else, he was a Jew. And he was deeply invested in the Jewish religious practices of the day. And so he went to, to synagogue on the Sabbath like every Jew, good Jew would have done in that day. So Jesus, the observant Jew, stands up to read from the text in Isaiah, and things seem to be, appear to be, going really well. Like if we stop the story in the beginning of verse 22, you would think that Jesus has won over the crowd and they are, you know, they're, they're, everybody loves him. All the people spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But there is more going on in this story than meets the eye. You think the story is one thing and then it turns out to be another. And the explanation of what exactly is going on, I think, is actually in the text that Jesus reads from Isaiah. Isaiah 61 and 58, I referenced last week, what he reads is sort of a mashup of these two passages. And what's, when it's written back in Isaiah's time, what you need to know is that Israel, they, they, they were not a free nation. Israel had been conquered, and many Jews had been forced to leave Jerusalem, what we refer to as the exile. And by the time these words that Jesus is quoting were written, from the prophet Isaiah, the exile is over. So Jews, Jerusalem was conquered, Jews were sent out of Jerusalem, but by the time these words are written, Jews were allowed to move back to Jerusalem, to return home. But just because they're allowed to turn home, they're, they're still under foreign occupation. If you remember a sermon on uh, Jesus being the true and better Esther that I preached during Advent at the end of last year, we talked about that timeline. This is the same timeline. Where you know, the Jews, have, they've been exiled, they've been sent away, now they're, they're coming home, they're allowed to come home, but they're still under 
the only reason that they're allowed to come home is because they were conquered by another, the, the conquering nation was conquered by another nation, and that new ruler allowed the Jews to go home. The first ruler didn't. He sent them out. So Jews have been allowed to go home, but they are still under a foreign leader, a ruler, under foreign occupation. So, sort of like Jesus' situation. They're home, but things aren't the same. They're waiting for the year of the Lord's favor. They are still waiting to be released. They, they think, well, maybe with this ruler occupying us now, maybe he'll allow us some freedom that we didn't enjoy under the previous regime. And Isaiah, in the midst of that context, says that a day is coming. A day is coming, Israel, when good news will be proclaimed for the poor, when release will be proclaimed for the captives, which they are. When sight for the blind will happen, when the favor of God will rest on the world. And they are hoping for that day in that time, in in Isaiah's time, when those words were spoken. But that day had not arrived yet. And now Jesus has arrived. And he says that this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The year of the Lord's favor has arrived. And he says that it's arrived in him. So 500 years. Israel's been waiting from the time of Isaiah to the time of Jesus. 500 years approximately have passed that they've been waiting, and now Jesus says that it's arrived. But what? What's arrived? To answer that question, I think we even have to look back further before Isaiah 61 to the passage in Leviticus 25. Because this passage that Jesus quotes in Isaiah is rich with language, and I referenced this really quickly in passing last week we're going to explore it a bit more today this passage in isaiah 61 is rich with jubilee language the year of jubilee a phrase that you've probably heard me say and heard others talk about through the years and jubilee in leviticus 25 simply talks about that every 50 years every 50 years debts will be canceled prisoners will be set free will be released slaves will be released The land that you lost during that 50-year time will be returned back to you. So just imagine that for a minute. Every 50th year, like all those things that had gone wrong in your family, your individual family, your family tree, your family line during that that period of time that put you in a less than desirable position are undone. Every 50 years, it will be a year of jubilee. But why should it be every 50 years? Why would they even do this in the first place? Well, the answer to that is in verse 38, Leviticus 25, 38, that says these words. God wanted them to do this because of this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. This year of Jubilee was rooted for Israel in the story, their story, and specifically what God had done for them brought them out of slavery, gave them a land that was not originally theirs, all to remind them that he, they were his people and God was their God. This God is the God that had released them. This God is the God that remembered that they were prisoners. This God is the God that remembered them when they were poor. This God is the God that remembered them when they were oppressed. And God wants them to remember that because that is their story, that is the story that they need to live moving forward. 
that in the same way you were oppressed and poor and blind and in slavery, you need to remember, to, to, and you were freed from all of that, you need to remember to pass that on in your own story. God's done something for you, and because of that, every 50 years, you will do it for others. This, this is the background, church, that, that these people in this synagogue in Nazareth would have had in their minds when they hear Jesus say the words, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is, this is what they hear. This is the context they would have had as a part of their history. And, and so you can imagine, right? They're thinking, wow, like, Jesus, you're going to do all of that? I mean, we've been waiting 500 years for this, and you're going to do all of that. They're amazed, and, and they speak well of Jesus, Luke tells us. But then the story starts to turn, and I love that the way that when, when they came back later and added chapters and verses to the biblical text, I love that whoever made this decision loved that, that they did it. They put 20, in verse 22, there is so much happening. Like, if you just read the first half, you get one story, but it escalates really quickly. And they say, is this Joseph's son? I mean, we know this guy. How could this guy possibly do all of that? Could Jesus really bring about all the promises of God that we've been waiting on? Could he bring those to bear on our lives? That All the promises that started way back in Leviticus, that Isaiah talked about, could Jesus bring all of those to bear? I mean, after all, this is Joseph's son. And you can imagine, right, someone saying, come on now, I mean, you guys remember who this is this is jesus and we knew jesus when he was just this high he used to run around this synagogue playing nearly knocking over our sweet widowed ladies after church right and he was always challenging all of his bible class teachers he always thought he knew more than they knew this jesus is going to accomplish all of that surely this scripture can't be fulfilled because of him I know we've heard about all that he did at Capernaum, but I also know that he has to prove it to us. Prove to us, Jesus, that you're really who you say that you are. Do hear what we heard that you did in Capernaum. And Jesus says, a prophet is always without honor in his hometown. You might be left still, because I think in our situation, we, you know, we elevate Jesus, rightly so, to a, you know, a specific place that only he occupies those people hadn't gotten there yet right he, he isn't all that we know him to be for them so you might still be wondering like why is a prophet without honor in his hometown let me answer that question with a question have you ever taught our fifth and sixth grade class i'm actually teaching it right now on wednesday nights if one of those boys in that class, as much as I love each one of you boys, you can ask the girls that are in there. I think they would agree with me. If one of those boys came back in 20 years or so, proclaiming to be the Messiah, all of us would go, you're going to have to prove it. <laughs> We've known you since you were this high. We saw you knocking down old ladies in the, you know, in the foyer. We saw you challenging your Bible class. We saw you not paying attention, whatever. You know, like, we would say, prove it prove it this is a normal reaction that, that initially you think well why are they doing this but they aren't where we are having elevated Jesus to the place that he rightly occupies today so this is my example right of fifth grade boys sixth grade boys fourth grade boys claiming to be a messiah if Jesus 
did that, if he, he was among us and then grew up to be who he is, we would do the same thing. But Jesus doesn't use that example. Jesus reaches into their history. And Jesus tells a story about two of their prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Why these two stories? Well, first of all, because he's making a point. He, he singles out what you, what, what's happening in that period of time of Elijah and Elisha's time as prophets of Israel. He's singling out a period of Israel's past that was truly one of the lowest in their history. And during that time, these two prophets of God, things were so bad that they did no work in the nation, but they did help a couple of people. But it just turns out a widow is one of those people whose name we don't know and a, name, a man named Naaman that had leprosy. But the deal is with both of these people, they're not Israelites. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. And by using these examples, again, what's happening is Jesus is comparing that time in Luke 4 to the previous time in Israel's history when Elijah and Elisha were prophets. He's comparing that time, this current time for them to that time in their past. And this just makes them furious. So mad, in fact, that they want to kill him. They want to throw him off a cliff. What would make them so mad that they'd be ready to throw him off a cliff just by referencing this low spot in Israel's history? Well, let's look, about, let's look and think about the stories and reflect on those for just a minute. I'm not going to go and read them, but you might, well, I'll, I'll mention the passages and you might make note and go read them yourself later. In 1 Kings 17, we find the story of the widow in Zarephath. During a famine, God sent Elijah to the land of Sidon where a Gentile woman was given this miracle of flour that was never empty and a jar of oil that never ran out. The, this Gentile widow survived through the famine through the miracle of a Jewish prophet. So that's 1 Kings 17. 2 Kings 5 is when Elijah's successor, Elijah, heals the Gentile Naaman of leprosy. But the thing is, is that Naaman wasn't just any Gentile, which we don't get in Luke's version of the story. Naaman was the general of the dreaded Syrian army that had been threatening Israel. They were an Israelite enemy. So it's one thing to make a widow the sympathetic figure in a Jewish story, right? It's another thing altogether that Elisha healed a Syrian military general. Like, just imagine an American story where God heals the general of an enemy nation. And you'll get some idea of what's going on with the story of Naaman. And these aren't just nice stories about God providing for a widow and a Syrian, right? These are stories that are making a statement about God's love for Israel's enemies. For people that are not Israel. If you've read the story of Naaman being healed, you know by the end of the story, you can't but feel happy for Naaman that he's healed of leprosy. Now his servant acts in a different way, and you know, that's another part of the story. But of course, the thing is, you, you, begin, you kind of get caught up in the story and you start to feel happy that this has happened to him. And the reality is that you think about what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 4. Once you start feeling sympathy for Syrian generals, you might have to rethink Syrian people altogether. They want to throw Jesus off a cliff because they can't imagine 
that God's favor, God's jubilee, God's freedom from oppression, sight to the blind, good news to the poor could extend even to Sidonians and Syrians. These people in Nazareth had their eyes open twice that day. First, they had their eyes open in that they saw Jesus, who they had known since growing up as a young boy in Nazareth, and they saw him as the Messiah. And the other way that they had their eyes open is that this Messiah had come to to bring jubilee, not just to them, but to everyone, even those that they did not want God to save. And the question that I think about this morning is, isn't that true for us? Like, isn't, isn't it true that sometimes we, we know God to be the creator of the world? We know that every human in the world bears the image of God. But we still sort of construct this picture of Jesus in our minds that is mostly like us. We create God in our own image. So that when Jesus comes to town and asks us to do something hard, we just as soon throw him off a cliff than actually change our lives. Forgive that person that hurt me years ago? (laughs) Jesus, you can go jump off a cliff. Jesus, you you want to redeem the life that I don't think can be redeemed? You might as well just go jump off a cliff. Jesus, you want to change what about my life? You can go jump off a cliff. Like, how many of us miss him because he comes in ways that we don't expect for him to come? This morning, is there any room in your mind or heart to be changed about what you expect of Jesus? Maybe you expect Jesus to be a miracle worker, like the story we looked at two weeks ago in John chapter 2 of turning water into wine. Maybe you expect him to be a normal guy. I wonder how many of these people from Nazareth they just expected him to be a Joseph's son, right? Maybe your expectations of Jesus are that he'll bless your life, make you happy and healthy, but you find that you're not always happy or healthy. And, and I think that Jesus doesn't always want us to be happy. What Jesus wants for us, church, is to be transformed, to be changed. He wants these people in Nazareth to surrender fully to the way that God is going to do things in the world. They don't want to adjust their expectations, though. When Jesus comes to town, though, it it may require that we adjust our expectations. I I know I can be guilty. Maybe you feel like me that we, I can be guilty of sort of putting Jesus in this box and allowing Jesus to come out only when, and speak into my life when I ask him to do that. On my terms. And I think until we are completely captivated by the radical mercy and grace of Jesus, we will be tempted to think that God's salvation is only for people like us. People who worship like us, people who think like us, people who look like us, people who live where we live. And I think until we are completely captivated by the radical goodness and grace and favor of God, we might have a hard time when it turns out that God saves all of them too. When God transforms their life too. And of course, we can be our own worst enemy sometimes, can't we? God's favor is extended to them, but God's favor is also extended to you. 
And sometimes we believe about not just about other people, but ourselves, that truly God can't do that in us. God can't forgive that. God can't undo that. God can't redirect my path because you've seen my past, right? You might as well go and jump off a cliff, Jesus, or I'll walk you to the edge if you need help because that ain't changing in my life. We might not actually say that out loud, but we might think it in our heads. The favor of God, he speaks, he speaks for you too. And if we aren't ready for our hearts and minds to be open to it, the thought, just the thought of it, might make you furious. It might make you want to throw Jesus off a cliff. The people in Nazareth missed it. They tried to kill him. But he passed through them and went on his way. And as far as we know, he never, what breaks my heart about the story the most, is we don't know that he ever went back to Nazareth after this. They didn't see Jesus when he was standing in front of them. He passed through them and walked on his way. Jesus wasn't going to die that day. That's why he walked through them. He died once and only once. And the day that he died, all the promises that he quoted there in Luke chapter 4 from Isaiah, the, the year of Jubilee that had been talked about back in Leviticus 25, on the day that he died and was raised from the dead, all the promises of God became true. Freedom, good news, recovery of sight, and God's favor. The year of Jubilee had come once and for all, and not just for you or the people like you, but for everybody. This morning, if you would like to accept that gift, it may be that that's where you are this morning, and we would love to talk to you about that, receiving Christ and being immersed and baptized into the way of Jesus Christ. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you about it. It would be tempting this morning also for not only Jesus to walk through the crowd and to go on his way, but for you to walk through this crowd and to go on your way out one of these doors. Because sometimes that's what we do whenever something is, God is doing something in our lives, in our hearts, rather than actually deal with it, we would, we would avoiding it, it feels easier. And we think, if I can just get out those doors as quickly as possible and not look anybody in the eye and not talk to anybody and just give them a, if they say, how are you, just say fine. When I'm really not fine, then maybe they'll leave me alone. This morning, don't be, don't, don't fall into that trap of the evil one of leaving it pent up inside of you and not dealing with it not not because it needs to be shared in a public way but maybe you need to find somebody around you and say i just need you to be praying for me i need to talk to you this week can we have coffee can we have lunch because the reality is we also when when confronted with these things in our lives that we don't want to deal with we can walk through the crowd and go on our way and avoid it and so this morning I don't know where you are and how you might need to respond, but I want to encourage you to respond. Maybe you do it privately, standing right there in your seat. Maybe you find somebody around you. Maybe you find an elder in the back and have them pray with you, or I'll be up front. However you need to respond. Really, you're always responding to God. I hope we understand that. You're never responding to me or to whoever's standing down here or whoever's in the back or even responding to the person that's, that you go and ask you to pray with. You're always responding to God. We just get to be kind of conduits of that process, participants in that process, allowing God to use us to minister to each other. That's what this time after our sermon is about every week.
However you need to respond to God, let's do that while we sing. Will you stand with me? Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I'd fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you every hour I need you my one defense my righteousness oh God how I need you where sin runs deep your grace is more grace is found is where you are and where you are lord i am free holiness is christ in me and where you are lord i am free Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need So teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. You're my one defense. My righteousness, oh God, how I need you. You may be seated.